You talk dirty to me. The Quick and the Dirty with Hillary and Sandra. You're kidding me. Here are things that I have put in my mouth. Uh, oh, my God, Hillary. <laughs> it's what everyone is talking about. Get jazzy on. I'm Hillary from London. And I'm Sandra from Ottawa. And welcome to the Quick and the Dirty podcast. It's basically what you talk about with your friends, except we post it online afterwards, and we also have some really cool guests. Yes, we do. Today, we're pretty excited about our guest, who actually has an incredible story to tell about youth homelessness. Yes, at one time, he was actually homeless and living on the streets, and we're going to talk to him about how he turned everything around. That's really inspiring. But first, we have to hear about how you and I are total disasters. What happened to you this week? (laughs) I got the stink eye because I didn't tip somebody. That's what happened to me. Uh, you went to a restaurant or your salon and you didn't tip? No, this, I think it's even worse because now I feel like we have to redefine the rules of tipping because I thought I knew everything about that world, uh, that dark, scary world of tipping. But I guess I don't. I went to pick up food from a takeout place. It was the okay. restaurant. I ordered a takeout. I went. I picked it up. I paid for it with debit. There was a prompt for a tipping option, and I, you know, hit the no tip option, and I figured that was uh, acceptable. When I gave the machine back to the woman who was working behind the counter, she gave me the stink eye when she realized that she didn't get a tip. And then, of course, I picked up on the stink eye, and since that time, it's been 36 hours, by the way, I've been... (laughs) It's been it's been replaying in my mind what it is that exactly I did wrong because I don't know. I have no idea. You tip people at takeout. It depends on the food. What was it? Mexican. Mexican food. So like it's really just a fast food joint that you went and picked up from. Actually, no, it's a sit down, well-established franchise in the Ottawa area. And they have this fantastic little takeout menu or takeout option and a takeout sort of like counter where people, you know, pick up. So they don't deliver. You go and you pick it up. All right. I think you under tip for sure. Uh, For takeout, I tip 10 percent. What? And for table service, I tip 20. Now, I don't tip on my coffee. I don't tip on like fast food. But if it's a sit down restaurant that you're picking up at, absolutely, because they have to tip out to the kitchen. See, that's what I understood that I have been talking to various people about it. Of course, I've gone on a fact-finding expedition now. And people are saying to me that, that, you know, the servers actually uh, lose money on the takeout. And to which I say, why is that my problem? Uh, Because that's a fair question (laughs) or fair answer, I think. (laughs) Honestly, why is it my problem that the restaurant isn't being fair with their staff and paying them accordingly and and offering them more money for this special takeout option that they have now? So there's that question. And then my friend Deb, who I feel like I talk about in every single episode of this podcast now. (laughs) She is basically your non-sexual life partner. She's my non-sexual life partner. She's also the voice in my head and sometimes the voice of reason. She said to me you should tip them because they put everything in nice packaging for you. They put plates and cutlery. And I thought, isn't that part of the deal? I don't pay a server for plating my food. Why am I tipping somebody for... Well, you kind of do. You're paying the kitchen. When you tip a server, they have to tip out to the kitchen. Okay. So even if you're getting table service, that money doesn't just go to the server. So when you're getting takeout, you may not be tipping the server, but you're still tipping the kitchen. Because people in the kitchen, they earn crap money. Like, they don't make regular minimum wage. They make a reduced rate. And tips is how they make up for it. See, I thought the kitchen staff was making a regular wage, and it was the servers that weren't making a regular wage. That's Mm -hmm. what I thought. I could be wrong. So... 
I still say, why is it always on the consumer to pay somebody fairly? It should always be on the boss to pay them fairly. And the system is inherently unfair, obviously. I think we can all agree on that. Right. I still don't understand why she gave me the stink eye. Because she should have just sucked it up. She should have sucked it up because now she's ruined my 36 hours, you know, and I'm like well, examining myself you as a person. ruined her 36 hours because you took away half an hour's pay because she has to tip out to the kitchen even though she didn't get anything. Even though she didn't get anything. So next time I go to do pickup or takeout and pick it up, I'm supposed to give 10%? Yeah, you might as well just eat there and then have them clean up after. <laughs> like, seriously. Yeah. Uh, I don't know... Why it's different in Australia than it is here, but in Australia they pay uh, eighteen to twenty dollar an hour wage to wait waiters and waitresses and kitchen staff. Perfect, but you don't tip. So the right. price of your meal is higher. Like you'll look at the prices at restaurants and think, "Wow, that's really expensive," but there's no additional cost. And then there's no room for you being a cheapskate either in the tipping or department, or being angry or not feeling like you got good right. service. So right. that's your call, right? Tipping is great in, in that it's an incentive for servers to do an extraordinary job for you. But sometimes we can all agree it doesn't pay off for everybody. No. And now if you don't give 20 percent, you feel like the terrible person. Yeah, I, yeah absolutely. The, the whole system is is wrong. And I, I hate the whole world of tipping to begin with. I got a massage. I think I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. And I went to tip the masseuse. And she said, oh, we don't take tips here. And I said, well, why do I tip at the spa, but I don't tip here? And she says, well, this is more of a medical spa. So right. they don't take tips. I'm just confused by the whole tipping thing. It's uh, very confusing. School bus drivers want a tip. What? You know, here's two bucks for not killing my kid. Thanks for coming out. No, that's that. Yeah, yeah they want, they want. Like, Basically, we all them- it's people who don't feel like they make enough money. But if you negotiate your salary, this is why unions were made. Well, this is. <laughs> oh, now we're into the unions, are we? Here we go. <laughs> But when a school bus driver, you know, wants a tip and it's like, if I don't give you a tip, you're going to break hard <laughs> and my kid goes through a windshield. What's happening? Here? Yeah. You know what I mean? Then you have to tip for an airplane and that's going to be an that's, expensive tip because you're literally hurtling people through the air in a tin can. Right. If you tip better, the landing would have been a lot softer. I'll tell you. If I tipped, can I not clap when we land? <laughs> I, I, just, I feel like we've just gone to a whole new level with tipping. And I don't, I don't know why I didn't know the rules about takeout, but I guess next time I'll go 10%, but not more 10% because then it's stupid. Yeah, then you might as well eat there. Then I might as well eat there and make a mess so that she has something to clean up and she can earn her tip. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Oh, uh, God. It's, and you know, and the I- irony in all of it is that I was there for less than 30 seconds. <laughs> you know, here's your 10 bucks. Thanks for coming out. It's just it's ridiculous. Who's going to tip me? Do you know, we do this podcast. And if you like this podcast, <laughs> I would like you to leave a five dollar bill on your iPhone or wherever you enjoy your Send iTunes. Send us an e-transfer to the Send quick and the dirty at gmail.com. <laughs> this is a free podcast. But you know what? Hillary mixes it every single week. I put it online. Oh, stop your whining. You're such a little diva. What? I want... Stop it. I would like you to tip me. Podcast list. I have a tip for you. What is, what's what Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're going to go right. there, we're going to go there. What's your, what's your quick this week? Okay, so you were getting the stink eye this weekend. I was giving the stink eye at a hot yoga class. First of all, hot yoga 
it's amazing. It makes your body feel great, but it's kind of gross just to begin with. Yeah, I've I've heard about hot. I've done regular yoga, and the idea of like even making it worse just seems ridiculous. <laughs> and why would the room be like the hot room in itself? I get it, but I don't really get it. What did uh, you do? It helps your muscles relax. Anyway, it's very warm. Like people <sighs> who maybe normally wouldn't wear a tank top are wearing tank tops and crop tops because it's so hot. And a lot of the guys in the class, they go shirtless. But most of them will lay a towel on their mat first because guys tend to sweat a bit more than the ladies, right? Okay, sure. Yesterday, it was a packed class. The guy next to me has his shirt off. I mean, he was relatively toned, so I was a kind of okay with it to begin with. <laughs> And then the class started, and he just started dripping. And he only had his towel on the top half of his mat. And every time he laid down, his back would fart from the moisture like that. (laughs) 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 Which, you know, is... I can let a regular fart go in yoga because things are relaxed. You're doing like abdominal compression. I get it. See, like, I get it. That's where you and I differ. I can't let yeah. that go. You've been marked for life. I no no. I have never done presence. it, but I'll like I'll be oh, fine. I get it. You were too okay. relaxed. Yeah. Okay, it's hot yoga, but this guy's now <laughs> taking it to a next level with the back He's fart. He's back noises. farting. So I kind of get over it. I move on. He's like, like the heavy breathing. <sighs> Uh, and I'm trying to, like, forget that he's there. Anyway, at the end of the class, everybody's just sweating. At the end of the class, he gets up, rolls his mat up, takes his towel, and walks out. And before I had a chance to look over, uh, he was gone. I look over at the floor. There is literally a puddle <gasps> of maybe a cup of sweat No, sitting on the floor. <laughs> like, uh, it, it looked like someone peed themselves. So the next person who goes to enjoy a lovely hot yoga is going to get his DNA all over them. Oh, uh, I don't understand how people don't clean up after themselves in shared spaces. Well, that is the yeah. ultimate in disrespect, whether you're at a regular gym and you don't wipe off the machines or you're at an office and you leave your dirty dishes in the sink. People who don't clean up after themselves are disgusting. <laughs> and gym etiquette is I mean, that's the first rule of gym etiquette is wipe down your equipment when you're done with it. And once you get into, once you get that and you realize, you know, the possibilities of your sweat being all over machines and other people sweat on your machine you become pretty cognizant of it so the fact that this guy who's toned clearly he's been to a gym before he should know <laughs> yes, better. he has yeah, um, so that's what i'm saying <laughs> if it was a newbie maybe you'd be like oh dude doesn't know the rules right like if it was me and someone looked at me and they'd be like wow she really <laughs> she was really working but, <laughs> but or if you can't not sweat everywhere and you don't want to clean it up wear an absorbent shirt yeah, wear like those. a little tank top. I don't understand why you can't wear a tank top that's flowy in yoga. The instructor does. I don't think that there should be nudity allowed. It's not that I don't want to see you nude. It's that I don't want your sweat everywhere. I agree like with that. Like he would roll over and I get a splash. <laughs> it's like you were in the ocean. <laughs> Very so, Hills, salty. Did you, did you give him a like? Did he pick up on the look that you were giving him? Uh, I don't know. The problem with hot yoga is you're also not allowed to talk, which is the worst because. I also ticked someone else off in hot yoga yesterday. Oh, so you were chatty Cathy. Well, because the class was so tight, I was next to someone and I apologized that I might touch them in advance. Like, if I touch you, I'm sorry. And I think she thought that I didn't want her to be next to me. So she moved. So you were already a problem to begin with when you got there is what you're saying. So I was not going to speak when I found the puddle. 
Right. So you're like, okay, I'm all, I'm, I've already been marked. <laughs> There's a <laughs> spotlight on me already as being difficult in this hot yoga class. I know. I don't want to yeah. rock the boat. So to, speak. so to speak, right? <laughs> Did, by the way, can you go to the instructor and say, I need you to watch this guy for next time? Uh I know I wouldn't. It's supposed to be like everybody loves each other and everything's fine. Oh, really? Okay, whatever. I, you know what? I I was going to try hot yoga at my gym because I've only done the regular yoga. And by the way, it took me two days to untangle myself from that hot mess. <laughs> so hot yoga now off the cards. Now I have an excuse not to go. Good, good. And good, uh, good. Uh, you wear too much eye makeup for hot yoga. I know, right? I actually did go to the gym yesterday, and uh, what's hilarious is that I always, at the very least, I'll put on a little CC cream, (laughs) mascara, and a little gloss. Maybe some, maybe a little bronzer, so I have a glowy look to me. Are you? You're one of those people. Are you also one of those people that spends more time having conversations than actually working out? Oh, I crack jokes between elements all the time. <laughs> and then the guys in front of me, actually, Richard and Morgan, they've been on the podcast before. We go to a Sunday morning body pump and they're like dripping sweat, especially Richard. Like he's a hard worker at the gym and mm-hmm. uh, he's looking at me and he's sweating and he's looking at me. I'm like, oh, I, I don't sweat. As soon as I feel like I'm working too hard, I pull back. <laughs> Just pull back a little bit. I don't like to sweat because, you know, I have mascara on. Right. You would be a hot mess in this yoga class. I wiped my eye and I look like a raccoon. Um, A little part of me just died on the inside (laughs) when you said that. I can't even. I can't even. So let's uh, let's move on. To, I, I, there's no way to segue from where we are to where we're going, Hillary. To be perfectly honest with you, so I'll, I'll, oh yeah, there is because we can't seem to turn things around in our lives. Oh. But but that's per, but our guest has come from teen homelessness, youth homelessness, and over the course of the last few years, he has completely turned his life around, and he has incredible story to tell. Please welcome to the Quick and the Dirty Podcast, Corey. Illingworth. Yay! Welcome, Corey. Thank you. Hello. Can, can I just say that in the middle of our quick, Corey actually passed me a Rolo, an entire roll of Rolos. You were you were saying, oh, well, I don't get tipped or anything like that. So, well, it's either a Rolo or an arrow. It's up to you. Are you Corey, actually... can you move a little closer to your mic? Oh, well, oh. I'm about as close as I can. Bo- oh, that was my there bad. There we as go. Usual. There we um, go. S- sorry, Corey. It's once again, it's the that's technical right. problem is mine. That's all right. <laughs> sorry about um, that. Yeah, but he actually tipped me in Rolos, Hillary. Yeah. Well, she, she was saying, oh, no, I don't get tipped. And I'm like, well, I have a Rolo or an arrow. It's up to you. Here's a tip. Put a Rolo in your mouth and stop talking. <laughs> All right, Corey. Uh, I don't even know where to start with your story. Oh, it's dear. so inspirational. And I think for anyone who's struggling with anything in their life right now, uh, a good example of how you can turn things around. Well, I mean, it's not easy. I mean, I even I mean, now I'm I'm a lot more successful. I'm going into a career just starting now. And I still look back and I'll see people who've been there. I've known for five years or so um, who were in the drop-ins and whatnot, the shelters, um, when I was there. And they're still there. And I'm thinking, well, what are you doing? You know, and it's 
it's really tricky to watch that, you know, because you can't do anything. It has to be the person. Right. They're in a bad Absolutely. cycle and they're the ones who mm-hmm. have to, you know, instigate the change. Exactly. If you will. So I guess we can start from the beginning with your story because I, I actually don't know a lot of your story. I know that as a youth, as a teen, you spent time in homeless shelters at various times. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do we begin? How um, old were you when you you no longer had a home? I... Well, it's tricky because it wasn't a, a, a permanent thing. It was something that happened. It was a transitional sort of phase. Uh, so I think the first night I ever spent homeless, per se, uh, I was about 16. And I was living in a country town. I'm talking 10,000 people. Small, small town. But this was the metropolis for the area. And um, I just, I had to leave home. I was told, get get out, you know, leave. We don't want Because of here. arguments with your parents? Yeah, or? it <laughs> So it's it's tricky because the circumstances where I was really spoiled as when I was younger, and then when I got older, they had huge expectations on me, uh, to which I couldn't fill because I had been spoiled. So to go from being spoiled to having huge expectations, big change in my, uh, I couldn't adapt to it at that time. So it was kind of just like a hard rock that hit me. So I couldn't handle it. And then I just went, well, screw this. I'm out of here. You know, I'm going to do my own thing. So um, from the time I was 16 to the time I was 18, I would spend nights mostly at friends' places, couch surfing, that sort of thing. Um, And their families were really nice. They were really lovely. They would actually feed me uh, from time to time. Other times I had a uh, newspaper gig and it was $60 a week. And that, that was my food. That was my rent. And... Obviously, other things, you know, substances and whatnot at that age. Um, and then when I hit 18, my 18th birthday, and I, I will remember this every day. Um, the night going into my 18th birthday, that was the final day where I said, I'm done. I'm out of here. Forget this. Because I had a, my sister would have been eight years old, I think, tiny. And my mom and I would argue to the point where our faces would turn red. And I thought, well, she's eight years old. I don't want her to deal with this. So I just said, screw it. I left um, a backpack, a garbage bag, took all my stuff, and I left. That was it. And uh, that night I spent about $200 worth of substances all in one night within two or three hours. Wow. It was big time. And um, I didn't want to stay there at that that night where, where I was staying because the person who I was using with the most – I was basically the guinea pig, so, um, well, you, I'm assuming you guys know about fentanyl and that kind of yeah. thing, and how... Is that what you were using? Well, no, 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 no. Uh, I mean, I hadn't even heard about it until recently, but for there were things similar to that, where... So they he, were making you take the drugs first to exactly. see if there was anything bad in them. Exactly. If it's laced, if it's messed up, I'm going to take it first. That way, if something happens, he does not die, or he does not get really sick. That cool. was... Are you serious? Yeah. And you knew this? At the time, I thought, well, it's free. Why the hell not? Or it's cheaper. Why not? Right? So. They gave you a discount price? Does it, the, the dying and, and discount? He also, <laughs> and he also <laughs> let me stay on his couch. So, I mean, mm-hmm. at, at the time, I'm thinking it's either this or I'm screwed. You know? Right. So, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, so, my day before my 18th birthday, I did all these drugs. And his brother, half-brother, something like that. Uh, had just come back from work, and he was driving to the next town over, which is where my school was. I said, can you give me a ride to the next town over? I had maybe 10 bucks left. I said, I'll give you this. Can you give me a ride over? 
So he drove me over, dropped me off in front of the high school, and this was 1.30 in the morning uh, in April, and it was cold. It was freezing. And I remember I just sat down. And you know when you're you're either sitting down or you're lying down in a way where you just don't want to move, where it's just comfortable, and you're just Mm -hmm. like, I'm frozen. That was me for about three hours on the side of the highway in front of my school. Which is the worst thing you can do. Yeah, and it was probably um, in the low ones at best. Um, and I had a, a hoodie on. That was about it. And that that morning, or that day, I went into the school, and I had a friend whose dad owned a rehab home. And I looked at him, and I said, I, I was thrown out. I said, listen, I got to fix this. Can you ask if I can stay there? And he said, yeah. And I stayed. Eventually, I did stay there um, for about a month and a half. And I did graduate high school, came to Ottawa, and I was fine for about a year but unfortunately, things fell apart. And in Ottawa, so this, I would have been just turning 19 at this point, was when I was homeless. Uh, excuse me. I spent uh, probably the following three years after that uh, actually being on the, between couch surfing and being on the streets, uh, having an apartment for a month or two, back on the streets, that sort of thing. Like, I got so used to having to unpack and repack that I seldom unpacked my things. Everything was ready for a moment's notice that I'd have to leave. That was how frequent it was. Um, And I don't know if you've ever been in a shelter system. It is disgusting. It is filthy. Really? It is filthy. I remember. I can't um, imagine that they'd want it to be too attractive. Because it's not like they want to keep you there permanently. This is sort of a transitional place mm -hmm. in, in theory, right? Well, I remember. I'll just give you one story of one night that I spent in one of the Ottawa shelters. Um so you go in and basically it's people who have booked their beds. They get first picks, right? They have their bed. Um, but then once everyone's checked in or there's like a curfew, you can go in and see if there's a free bed. So this one particular night I did that. They had a bed, but they said it was downstairs. So you go downstairs and there's this one room that's probably the size of this office, which is pretty small. And there's a door to the cafeteria and then there's another door. And this looks like the hallway into the boiler room of a horror movie where you're going to die. <laughs> pitch intense. black. Pitch black. And I wow. have a backpack, and that's about it. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's where I have to go. So I'm walking in. There are people in, um, like, these cornered sections with four beds in each corner, and you're just walking by people sleeping. And it's the creepiest thing because it's pitch black. There's no light. But you don't want to turn on a light or your phone because you don't want to wake anybody up. Um, So I remember looking over people's heads trying to find the number for my bed. I finally found it. I looked down, and there was no mattress. It was just like the bed frame with the springs. So, And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm not going to go up and complain. I'm not going to try and find my mattress. I took all the bedding that they had given me, laid it down, and that was my bed. So were you only in adult shelters, not any sort of youth? No, I had actually stayed in a youth shelter um, through an organization here in Ottawa, and they are a lot better. They actually have their own specific rooms. They have common areas. They share showers. Um, That's very similar. My uh, significant other works in mm -hmm. social work. That's similar to to his sort of facility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot better because they actually, I mean, the door is locked behind you. So you have to ask the staff to do things and, 
Um, obviously, you can't bring substances in. You can't show up under the influence, that sort of thing. Um, there's certain guidelines, but it's definitely a lot better than adult an adult shelter because there is that sense of privacy. You know, you actually right. have a door that locks where no one can come in and bother you unless it's a staff member who's, for example, waking you up. So what was your turnaround point? What made you decide, I'm done with this, and how did you get clean and get out? Well, so that, in terms of uh, substance use, uh, that night when I turned 18, I just, I kind of wanted to do a last hurrah sort of thing, like a go over the top so that I don't ever have to do it again. And it's funny because um, I think about it now, every time I think about substances, so um, speed, ecstasy, any types of sort of pills, even cocaine, um, when I start talking about it, my nose gets itchy. I get that feeling of how it feels like to snort. And it, it, it actually irritates the nose, so I have to go, I have to wipe my nose or like um, scratch my nose really quickly. Um, but that was the last time for pills was that date. It would have been April 19th, 2010. And then in terms of marijuana, it was pretty much the same time. There was a few more times after that but it's still been years and when it comes to alcohol i uh, i was even telling sandy i drink i think i might have drank the last time was six months ago but i kind of just clued in um a few years ago i need to get my shit together i need to get my my life on track um and i remember going into the child and youth care program at algonquin here in ottawa algonquin college and I just said, you know what? Like, I'm going to have to work with some of these people, possibly. I'm going to have to you know, be a role model, be a positive influence, and I don't want to be this person who's homeless. You know, I don't want to be this person who's going check to check you know, and uh, just living their life on disability. But you st- So at that time, you were still not 100% clean, necessarily. You were still when I was in, in a volatile situation, and then you decided to reach out uh, to the school to help you. When I was going into the college, I wasn't using, at least to the level before, like okay. socially, for example. Uh, but in terms of using for personal entertainment, that sort of thing, I wasn't using it. Recreational, I wasn't, I wasn't about uh, in that frame of mind. Um, And what made you decide to go to school? Well, to be honest, my original thought was journalism and radio broadcasting, ironically. Um, (laughs) Trust me, kid, there's no money in it. Move on. Also, hard to get away from substances. There's always somebody messed up. That's true. (laughs) But um, I, uh, let me think. I thought of that in high school was journalism. Oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be easy. It's good. Um, And then just after my bout with substance use with homelessness i thought you know maybe i could make a career out of this you know i don't want to you know i want to relate from my experiences but in a way that's professional you know because i can't say well this worked for me so it's going to work for every street youth that's not the case you know every street youth uh or every uh person with a substance uh, addiction or substance abuse they are going to have different ways to to solve their own problems um uh, but I like to use my experiences and say, okay, to, to try and empathize with what they might be going through, to get a, a general idea. And it's it's kind of my way of giving back, I guess, but also at the same time, um, just trying to help these kids, you know, 
saying, I'm not going to tell you to do this. I'm not going to tell you not to do this, but I want you to look at yourself and say, what is the best option for me? And they have to want to want Mm -hmm. it as well, obviously. So you had a plan to go to school, but how did you think you were going to finance your plan? I mean, how did it all come together for you? Or do you just, I don't have a plan, but I'm going to go to this school and then hopefully a plan will come together. Obviously it did. That was the whole plan. And I mean, um, I obviously had to take uh, student loans because that was my only option at the time. Even if I was connected with my parents, uh, their income was nil at best. You know, they were... Uh, both low low income, so they were they were working with their own things, so they couldn't really finance either my sister my sisters or I to go to school. So I knew uh, for as long as I can remember that I was going to have to finance my own way, and I just couldn't get you know thousands of dollars in a flash. So I had to go with student loans. And to be honest, at the beginning I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I thought I was going to be in social work because. That you know, that's the stereotypical. Oh, you're going to help people, social work. But uh, someone mes- mentioned child and youth work, and I thought, oh, I'll check it out. And it's, I like what they do because they're very in depth. They were very in depth with their explanations. Uh, I actually got experience from them, which helps in the field because you need experience for every job these days. So, it so helps. are you working in the field now? Now I am. Yeah, I'm actually working uh, with the the school board here in Ottawa which is amazing. I love working there. Um, I'm, I'm currently a casual, but I love it because I can work with different schools, with different kids. You know, there's different... Uh, I have specific kids that I know, okay, when I go back, keep an eye on these kids, make sure they're okay, you know? And it, it's just become routine for me. Just I know who I'm going to work with in what schools. Do you... I have to ask about your parents because mm-hmm. I, you said that you, you, you explained what circumstances you left mm-hmm. under. Mm-hmm. But as you were couch surfing and moving mm-hmm. through these various organizations and so on, did you keep contact with your mom and dad? Um, so I tried because, again, I'm from a small town and it's very, um, it's easy for people to hear things, you know, people to gossip, I guess. Uh, so everyone hears everything about everything. Even if you don't know who, who uh, is talking about you, they know about you. They know about what's going on in your life. And that affects, you know, that was affecting them too. So I, for a while, all the communication we would have was uh, we'd yell at each other, basically. You know, I would come home and then it would be a yelling match. Were uh, they concerned about your drug habits? Was that I'm the sure majority they, of the... I, I, at the time, I thought, no, they just don't care about me. They don't. When I look back on it, I'm sure that's what it was. I'm sure of it that they were, you know, they were concerned. Um, they knew because they knew I was using at the time, um, or at least to some degree. And I guess they just they wanted best for me, but I don't know if they knew exactly at the time how to do that, right? Uh, especially considering I have an older sister and a younger sister, so it's like, how am I going to deal with this? But when I went into rehab. I actually cut communications with them completely. I said, you know, I, I, cause I was at the the time I was so frustrated that I said, I don't want anything to do with them right now. And I think it took me about a year or so before I actually reached out. And I mean, we, we still communicate now. It's more, uh, we see each other once every six months, you know, for the birthday, Christmas, that's about it. 
but that's because they live out of the city and I live in the city with no driver's license. So it's kind of hard to leave the city like that. Um, but I still try to talk to them, see, you know, how are things with family and that. So, but it's, it's still rough, you know, it's not quite the same. Is it rough on your side or theirs or both? Um, that's a good question. I want to say both, I think, because, um, you know, just thinking about how it was when I was younger and, you know, my early teens before everything began, um, was a lot different than it is now. And I don't know whether it's different in the sense that because I'm grown up now, you know, I've, uh, matured or whether it's because that particular event or particular series of events, uh, caused a huge change uh but it definitely made an impact and has definitely changed the way we communicate with each other um but you know there's there's still my parents we're still working through things it's definitely a lot better than it was five years ago for sure do you think there's a scenario in which you could have stayed um, that's a good, that's another I, I good question. I only ask that because, you know, I, the circumstances to which you left sounds like mm-hmm. a lot of the angst and the arguments that mm-hmm. a lot of us as teenagers have, yeah. not to diminish yours, because oh, no, I remember, I remember the fights I used to have when I was a teenager with my parents, you know, you don't understand me. I was a slight drama queen though. And you, uh, yeah, I know, shocking, <laughs> you? but I remember, I remember wanting to leave. I remember planning with my girlfriend when I was 18 years old, we were getting an apartment because I was misunderstood and I wasn't allowed I was still being babied Mm -hmm. and I wasn't allowed to you know grow as a human being and I I personally think I created a lot of the problems and we just didn't communicate well like you say there was just a really bad situation with communication in our in our house for a while Mm -hmm. but then it worked out as you know over time Mm -hmm. do you ever look back and say god I could have done it differently or do you think they do the same too and there are regrets there in in some cases I wonder if it was a possibility but at the same time, I don't like to entertain that thought because um, I like to think if that hadn't happened, if that series of events hadn't happened, as crummy as they were, as awful as they were, I would not be the same person. You know, maybe I would have been a journalist. Maybe I would have been an accountant. Who knows? Um, but I'm I as I am, am perfectly fine with who I am now. Uh, looking back, what happened happened. So be it. Could it have changed? Maybe. It's it's hard to say because we we were really at at you know butting heads all the time. So um it's one of those situations where it would there's so many factors it's hard to say. Um Do you still blame your parents for that headbutting or do you take some of the blame yourself? I, I definitely take some of the blame. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. I was um I was not of sound mind, we'll say. Um, and yeah, no, I, I definitely take some of it because, you know, look, at the time I would have said, no, it's, they don't understand. Like you were saying. Right. Like, oh, I misunderstood. Right. Yeah, it's, they don't understand me. I just think about parents at home with a teenager who's using and then an mm-hmm. eight-year-old. You want to keep the eight-year-old away from that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I completely agree. And that's... That's partially why when I did leave when I did, that that's why I did it was because I had my younger sister at home and I said, I don't want her exposed to this. You know, I don't, she, I want her to grow up in a way that I didn't necessarily, you know, I want her to grow up and, you know, learn how to take care of herself so that when she goes out, 
Like when I went out on my by myself, I didn't know how to do laundry. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was that spoiled. And I don't want my younger sister to be like that. I want my younger sister to know how to do laundry or how to cook craft dinner or, for example, you know, just, just small things. But they mean the world, especially when you get out there. And I don't want her having the same uh, spoiled upbringing that I had, you know. But at the same time, I don't want her having to deal with all of that. I want her to work through her problems before saying screw this, I'm going to go home. Uh, I'm going to go and leave home. Right. So um, do I take the blame? Absolutely. I take some of the blame, for sure. Um, but, you know, it's all about the circumstances. And in some cases, I think about some of the kids who are on the streets right now or who I've seen on the streets. Um, in some cases, they want to be there. I have seen cases where they want to be there because that's cool. You know, they're they're using and that's fun. But their friends that are, they're using with, they're on the streets. So they stay on the streets with their friends. Right. Or because their friends are on the streets and they don't want them to be by themselves. So they go out on the streets with them. Um, in other cases, and this is, some parents don't um, like to look at themselves as authority figures, which of course, you know, they're the caregivers. Um, but they look at it, the way they look at certain situations They'll say, don't do drugs, don't ever do it, blah, 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 you know, this, that. It's non-negotiable. Obviously, you don't want your kid to do drugs, obviously. But the more you tell them not to, they're more going to want to do it, you know? It's like uh, the argument of don't have condoms in high schools because kids are going to have sex. They're going to have sex regardless of the situation, you know? I would much rather tell my kid, I don't want you doing this. But I know there's a chance. I want to give you the information so you know what to expect so that if this does happen, you're safe about it. Corey, I'm just wondering now. Mm. I think we have a lot of, I'm going to say misconceptions mm -hmm. or maybe not about what it's like to be homeless and living on the streets. I'm, I'm really curious what a, a regular day would look like for you. You know, more mm -hmm. you wake up in a shelter and you go to sleep in the, sh the same shelter that night. Mm -hmm. How? What did your day look like? What did you do? It, I mean, it all depends. So for me, um, you know, being in the city, I wasn't using. So my my life was a lot different than someone else's life. But when I was younger, the average day would be, I get up seven eight o'clock in the morning. I I have because they have a, I want to say it's nine or ten o'clock. You have to leave. And you're not allowed back until four o'clock for dinner. So that you have to be out of the shelter for that time period. So I would leave. I would go. There was a local drop in, which would actually have breakfast. Uh, you could um, sit down, chat with friends, use a computer, uh, Facebook, whatnot, and or just converse. Um, so I would go there. Uh, you know, I'm sure if someone was using, probably say, hey, let's go smoke something or you know, whatever it may be. Um, and then 12 o'clock, you know, that's lunch rush. Go down. There's another drop in. Go down there, have lunch, hang out there until 4 o'clock. You know, for me, I, I would wait there till 3, 4 o'clock. And then I'd walk over back to the shelter, hang out. Because I actually had a, a living room with TV and all that. So we'd hang out, socialize, watch TV, that sort of thing. Um shower laundry go to bed how long can you stay in one of these shelters um i think 
it's about a year. If, if you're talking about an adult shelter, I don't think there's a time frame. For a youth shelter, I want to say it's a year, I believe. I, I would imagine it depends on the yeah, shelter. But. Of course, of course. But I, I'm for the one I'm thinking of in particular, it would be a consecutive year, I believe. And uh, obviously they're trying to help you get on the uh, housing registry to try and get you low-income housing. Um or, you know, some sort of transitional housing where, you know, for a, a bachelor apartment or a room is $300 or something like that, uh, which is enough that you can pay with, let's say, Ontario Works and still have money for your basic needs. Um, they actually got me into a long-term housing unit with the shelter I was in, and I was paying $115 a month for a one-bedroom. For one bed, I mean, it wasn't the nicest place. We had bed bugs and cockroaches and all that, um, which Tony is not fun. But, uh, but I mean, because it sounds like fun. Oh yeah, totally. You know, <laughs> it sounds dance. awful. You know, you got. Little but you're gonna bumps. find that in a shelter anyway. So yeah. Well, actually, I had never. I don't think I ever had an experience with bed bugs or cockroaches really? in the shelter system. Yeah, I know people have. Personally, I did not. Good. But. Uh, I mean, you're paying for what you get, and it's a lot better than staying in in the shelter, in my experience. And then I only recently transitioned out of there within the last year, out of that uh, low-income housing, uh, just because I found a better place. You know, with the career that I'm starting, I didn't want to be there anymore. Um, I wanted to differentiate myself. I'm no longer a youth. I am... You know, I'm an adult, I'm growing, I'm trying to become a professional in my field, and I want to, uh, you know, pa- get past what I used to be. Well, you want to stop that cycle, and you want to transition out. And, mm-hmm. ob- you know, and the, another part of it is that you want to create space for someone who may need it more. Exactly, exactly. But I, I bet that it must be very hard to get into one of those public housing units because, oh, yeah. I mean, the, the wait time must be unbelievable. And just all of these mm-hmm. programs, I know that they exist and they're great and they're mm-hmm. designed to help, but the waiting must be crazy. And I have to ask you about, you were saying that you ha- earlier you said something about booking a bed at a homeless mm-hmm. shelter. What do you mean you book it? Do you book, book it daily or can you book it monthly? So this is how it works. Is So you, let's say tonight I was homeless. I needed somewhere to stay. So I went downtown in Ottawa, for example, just, just for the scenario's sake, and I went to one of the homeless shelters. So I would walk in, and I would ask if they had a bed, a bed available, and that would specifically be for at least that night. So they would book me in. They'd give me uh, a piece of paper with my information. If I had medication, I'd have to hand it over to the front desk just for safety so someone doesn't overdose, for example, or steal your meds. Um, and all you have a locker, but they don't give you a lock. So for my case, most of the times I would take all of my stuff, my bag, my jacket, I tuck it behind me, behind my pillow, so that if someone tried to grab anything from it, I would feel them moving my jacket, moving my bag, for example. And thing, really important things like uh, my phone, my wallet, for example, I would actually stuff them down my pants just, just in case because I'm going to wake up if someone feel if someone's touching my pants, I'm going to wake mm-hmm. up, you know. Um so you spend the night and then you leave in the morning and then you have to check in at some point during the day um, just to let, let them know I'm going to be back tonight. But is there a scenario in which they would be like, I'm sorry, there are no beds available tonight. It's busy, busy, busy. And then what do you do? If you've already stayed there in the night, then that bed is yours until curfew. 
if you don't come back before curfew, well, sorry, you have to check in and then you have to be back before curfew. If you're not back before curfew, you lose your bed and it's first come, first serve. If there's no beds available, you have to go somewhere else. What was instrumental in changing your sort of status in life? What was the turning point? Um, well, with the, the substances, I kind of just realized, you know, I, I want to graduate and I'm sick of all this, you know, because I do attribute that to part of my downfall, if you will, when I was like, young. Right. Right. Yeah, but specifically, but- like getting from being in a shelter to turning it around, were the... Was I, it those programs that turned you around or? There was, yeah, there was one particular organization that I worked a lot with and they actually helped me to get into college because, and this is kind of surprising or was surprising to me, but uh, when you're applying for OSAP for student loans, uh, they have a parent's information section and they don't have a section where it says, I don't con- communicate with my parents. So for someone who doesn't communicate with their parents or homeless or whatnot, um, they actually have to call the um, st- the student loans and say, "Look, I don't speak to my parents. You know, what am I supposed to do?" Uh, but they were fortunate enough to say, "Well, we'll write you something up. We'll write something up to say, yes, they don't. He does not speak with his parents anymore." And then they actually helped me with that. They helped me with uh, getting stable employment while I was in college. Uh, but I think it was college, the idea of it, right? Because when you think of college, you don't think of someone who's on the streets, someone who's homeless. You know, you think of people who are trying to create a life for themselves. And that's what I thought. When I was thinking, you know, I'm trying to create my future. I don't want to do it homeless. So I, I kind of tried to get in that mentality of transitioning into adult life. And I thought, I don't want to be a homeless adult so I need to change that now. What can I do to change that? So, and the the low-income housing was the start because I was less, I wasn't on the streets so much because I was far enough away that I wasn't tempted to go downtown, hang out with my street friends. Um, and I just, just started to think, you know, do groceries every week, uh, you know, clean the house every week, that sort of thing that you would normally do. And I just... Eventually, get into the routine. You kind of go, okay. Now I'm an adult. Now I'm an adult, and exactly. I'm doing things. Do you ever, do you ever wonder about the people that you met along the way in the homeless shelters and where they have ended up? I mean, mm. your story has a happy ending, and mm. things are going great, and you've turned your situation around. Is it the same for all the people that you've come across? What happens to no. those kids that you were using with back in the day? Where are they? <sighs> to be honest, I. Well, when it comes to, I'll actually give you an example uh, from before I, I think two years ago I went and visited, uh, my younger sister was having her birthday and we decided to get pizza for the night and the one of the cooks happened to be the guy who was supplying me with substances when I was younger. Wow. Uh, the, the, the the one guy was giving me the bed and I was the guinea pig for. Yeah. yeah. Oh, guinea pig guys back in the yeah. picture. Wow. So he, uh, he might have been early 30s at this point, late late 20s, early 30s. And I looked at him, his hair was just a mess, and he had maybe two teeth. This is a serious, like, he looked awful. And he tried to talk to me like we were best friends, like we were hanging out yesterday, and I was just thinking, oh, dear. And I looked at my sister, and I said, don't ever talk to that guy, ever. But, and I, I mean, there are some, you know, success stories, some happy endings, like you were saying. Uh, 
but there are some where it's just either it ter- takes a turn for the worse or um, they just never seek it out, right? And it, it goes back to you have to do it for yourself because no one's going to do it for you. You can't expect someone to change your life, you know, for you. Um, they can help you. It's the analogy I like to use is we can give you a fork, but you got to eat your beans, you know, like, <laughs> right. You, you got to do it yourself. And when I look, I actually look back and sometimes I have to pass through downtown and I'll see some of the people who are, you know, panhandling or just hanging out downtown. And some of them are people I've known from five years ago who are, who were homeless at the time and are still homeless. And I'm thinking, man, I would love to help you. But at the same time, you got to help yourself. You know, but and then there's also others where they are success stories. So it's really on an individual um, basis in terms of who I talk to. There's maybe one or two people, maybe that I that I still talk to. And that's because um, one of the things that I wanted to do when I was leaving the homeless life, if you will, was that I wanted to disassociate myself with almost everything to do with it. And part of that was disassociating myself with the people, you know, because if they're still homeless or they're still struggling with it or with substance abuse, then you're more inclined to fall back into it. And my my attitude was I don't want to fall back into it. I mean, there are lovely people there, but at the same time, I have to do what's good for me. You know, I have to do what's best for myself. And at that time, that was isolating myself from those people so that I can better myself. So that Do you okay. find in your career that y- you are in danger of running into people who are doing substances and and might be inclined to fall back? Uh, do you mean myself well, fall back? You, or? you might come across a student and have to confiscate something mm-hmm. and then you'll have it. Do you worry about those moments? Not at all. Not at all. Because one of the things that they do in my that they did in my program was was that there's going to be uh, I'm sure you've heard the word trigger or triggers. Yeah. Basically things that will upset you or that will cause a reaction in you. Like one of the examples they use is, could you work with someone who raped people? You know, that's an example. But, and I guess in this case it would be the same thing. Like, could I work with people who are using, or if I found someone that had a joint, you know? And for me, it's come to the point where it's so disassociated with me and it's been so long that I have no problem with it. You could pop up, you know, 20 pills in front of my face and I would say, no, I'm taking that. Get away. And I would bring it to whoever would deal with that. But I don't I don't even worry about that anymore because, you know, I don't I like to say ain't nobody got time for that. Um, I just <laughs> it's just not it's not a part of me anymore. Right, it's not part right. of my life. So I, I look at it and think it's unfortunate that you're using that. I wish you didn't. But. You know, that's not part of me. Corey, I have one last question for you. If you were to come across a parent who had a a youth at home that was struggling with drugs and maybe at their last wit's end Mm -hmm. and didn't know how to maintain that relationship, what advice would you have for them to do best by that child? Does it take kicking somebody out? Should they keep them at home? I mean, every situation different, Mm -hmm. but what is your... Having gone through this, your suggestion? I mean, every situation is different, like you said. And, I mean, every kid is different. It's it's really hard to say, but I would, for parents, if they're not sure at all, seek out help. I mean, 
the worst case scenario, if you don't know, go online, research, um, connect with services if you can. Uh, like I know for myself, being coming from a small town, there are very few resources. But reach out to any resources you have on substance abuse. Um, if you have to go to a bigger city, do that. But connect with someone and say, look, this is what I'm dealing with. I don't know what to do. Um, and they might be able to help with those particular situations. Um, but at the end of the day, support the kid. You know what I mean? This kid is probably going through a lot right now. And it's very likely that the parent is probably going through a lot as well. But you have to keep in mind that this kid, this is all new territory for them. This is brand new. You know, they're walking in blind. You have to support the kid. And don't, I wouldn't say, no, don't do that. Obviously, we don't want our kids using. And in, in an ideal world, drugs wouldn't even exist. But at the same time, uh, you know, it's a, again, it's like the sex analogy. They're going to do it. Make sure they're safe. Make sure they know what they're they're going into, you know, and let them make an informed decision. Because if you're going to tell someone, no, I'm not going to do that, they're going to do it, especially now that you're telling them no. What about drugs like meth, though, where once you do it once, there ain't no going back? Well, that's not necessarily the case. In some cases, it, it's, it's definitely a strong drug and it's very addictive. But again, that all comes back to the education pieces. Talk to your kids. Say, listen, like I, I heard that you're using or I found this. I want to talk about it. You know, if you're telling this kid, I'm worried about you. I want you to be safe. Um, let's go online. Let's find out what what uh, what it is you've got, what you're using and what happens with it. You know, because. Uh, but they know, also need to want to change. Exactly, exactly. But that's part of the process is saying, I'm not going to force you to not do this. But at the same time, I want you to be safe. If you're going to do this, you're going to do this. Right. But I want you to be safe, you know? Because but some people would say that by allowing somebody to... Con- I'm, I'm being the devil's advocate here. Sure. Allowing someone to stay in your home and to pay for things, mm-hmm. you're supporting their habit. And, and I love playing devil's advocate as well. So uh, don't worry about that. Um, and I, and I agree with you on that. It's just think about, you know, if there's a family who refuses to let, let's say I'm I'm going to use the sex analogy again, their daughter, no touching of boys, none of that until 18 when you leave the house and you go to college, they go to college, they go crazy. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's the strictest, it's the kids that were brought up in that strict environment that go hog wild. Exactly. The second their parents aren't looking or are looking. The second they realize, you know, I have more freedom, I'm going to go crazy, you know? Yeah. And, And the other thing going, if we're using the drug analogy again, is they will find a way. It's... It's crazy. Like some of the things that uh, kids can think of just to get away with it, they will find a way nine times out of 10. So I would much rather, you know, I'm not going to like that my kids using, but I would much rather my kid be safe and know about it so they can make that decision, you know. And And also if they're in trouble, mm -hmm. they feel that they can go to their parents to say, listen, I'm in in deep right now and I need Mm -hmm. your help. And work through it. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Mm. Starting the conversation is a, a really important part of this puzzle. Absolutely. And like I was saying with the homeless thing, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be able to force them to to do what you want to do, right? They have to make that change themselves. You can only be there to support them and say, look, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do, but I want to I want to be there to help you. Like, obviously not paying for the drug, drug uh, the addiction, obviously. Um, but... 
just being a, a parental support, someone to talk to, um, you know, or if they say, like you were saying, look, I'm in really deep, I've messed up, this and that, then the parent says, okay, let's see what we can do and let's see who can help us. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Corey, on The Quick and the Dirty. Thanks for having me. I, I, I'm going to give you back your Rolo because I, I feel like you're, you such, you're such a great person to talk to. I wanted to tip you. <laughs> so thanks. Also, that's Sandra's drug. So <laughs> That's my drug. You take that. <laughs> thanks, Corey, so much. It was so great to talk to you. Thanks. And don't forget to follow The Quick and the Dirty on social. Instagram, at Hillary on air, at Sandra Kiss 105.3. Twitter, at Hillary Welch at Sandra Kiss 105.3 and Facebook at Quick and Dirty Podcast. If you've got a question for us, you can email us at thequickandthedirty at gmail.com.